There we are. It's the thing you do. You, you mute the microphone after worship is over. But that's the thing. Worship isn't over this morning. Uh, Doug, this is throwing me off, buddy. I, I like it. I put the chair there, so we'll go with it. It's my own fault. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28. Um, and as you're going there, uh, I wanted to just, today, I mean, we've been doing this, the, the beautiful community um, is the name of our, 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 the beloved community, not the beautiful community, sorry, the, the community of the beloved, the beloved community series we've been doing, uh, it kind of, kind of loosely centered around the idea that the doctrine of the Trinity and how the doctrine of the Trinity affects how we believe and how we act. And uh, this morning, I, I just, like, as we were preparing, Heidi and I were going through this series, one of the things I felt kind of led to talk about was worship. Um, and clearly, worship is, uh, Heidi talks about um, leading retreats is her favorite thing, one of her favorite things to do that she gets to do as a pastor, and leading worship and being a part of worship is one of the favorite things I get to do. Um, and so I wanted to talk about what is worship, and why do we do it? How does the Trinity affect that? And, and so we're going to look at a, a story from Matthew 28 that, that kind of gets there um, that will, will teach us a few things, I hope, then we will walk away with maybe a new respect for what it is we do when we sing songs together. Um, before I read that passage, though, this week um, Amelia came home, and she well, she's here. <laughs> she suddenly just popped out from behind the board like, oh. Uh, Amelia came home this week. She's like, "How I'm in my I'm in the sermon." Uh oh, and uh, she said, "Our teacher had us sharing stories uh, that changed us in just a few sentences." St what was that? Oh, <laughs> I got lots of clicks just now. I'm like, "What does that even mean?" You guys are distracting me. <laughs> uh, I'm too close. That's my own fault. I will get into a groove in a, in a minute. Okay, so stories that that changed us and. Uh, one of them was, my father came home and handed me a box of chocolates and then asked my mother for a divorce. I mean, that's a terrible story, but just a few words, right? Or you could think about, like, one was mine, is when I looked into the doctor's eyes, I knew, right? He, there's another way of saying it. Or, it's a boy, you know? Like, I, I remember, I remember, that's one of my stories, uh, and actually, this is how it went, it's a boy, no, it's a girl, <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> That was me saying it, not the doctors. They were looking at me really confused. So, um, But it was a story that changed my life, right? And we've all got stories, positive and negative, that we could probably, if we sat down, you know, like poets and crafted it, stories that changed our life, like in that, just in a moment, right? Well, this is a story um, about some guys whose lives were changed in a moment. And it's from Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 through the end of the, the book. Um, but a little context before we read the text. So this is the end of the book of Matthew, and it's a really triumphant story, right? This is the resurrection of Jesus. The, when, when it looked like God was down and out, when it looked like Jesus was done, suddenly he is risen from the dead. And there is like crazy rumors going around because first we just have women seeing it. Right, We have a couple of women see him in a garden, and they go and they tell all the men. And in that culture, and in that day, that was kind of a big deal. Like, women weren't to be trusted, right? They weren't, their stories weren't to be believed. But these men, they believed them, but they were very confused by it. And so it sets into motion this series of about 40 days of time where Jesus is, he's popping up like a jack-in-the-box, and he's showing up to different people. He's like Elvis, right? <laughs> no, he's not like Elvis. I, I got to not just agree with you, Doug. 
yes, he's like Elvis. No, he's not like Elvis. No, but he is. He just keeps showing up to people over and over. He's teaching, and he's walking down a road to Emmaus with a couple of guys who are who are just like running for their lives, and he just shows up with them, or they're eating dinner, and he walks through a wall of all things. It's kind of crazy, but then he eats, so it's not just a spirit, but this is a real person, and he's he's there, and he's alive with people. But you know, over the course of Jesus' ministry, thousands of people had been following him, and it had dwindled down to just a few, and and then just the eleven were really. Seeing him, the eleven, the eleven disciples, and the women that were with him were seeing him during this forty-day period. But he gave these instructions in the beginning of Matthew twenty-eight to the women. He said, "To go ahead into Galilee, and there you will see me." And so the rumors started going around that Jesus was going to show up back home in Galilee. And that's like good news for these guys, right? Because go home, <laughs> go back to where you're from, go back to where you came from, go back to where you first met me, and I'm going to show up there. And so these guys, and it, uh, the book of Corinthians actually suggests that around 500 men and women gathered together in Galilee for this moment. And here's what it says in verse 16, and I'm just going to read 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and he said, and you're going to be really familiar with all this part, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very ends of the age. To the very ends of the age. I want to focus especially in this, because when we read this passage, we all hear the go right? The go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. You hear that part. But we miss out on this first piece that happens before Jesus says those words. And I'm going to read them again. Now the 11 disciples and probably around 500 other people went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. The disciples are basically obeying the last thing that they heard Jesus tell them to do. And sometimes I think as Christians, as followers of Christ, we get into places in our spiritual journey where it just feels, it feels dry and like, oh, I don't know what to do. And God, you're not showing up. And these disciples, this is kind of just like a little side sermon here. They're just really doing the last thing they heard Jesus tell them to do. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're, if you're in that place, you're just kind of feeling dry, you're feeling lost, you're feeling like, oh, is God even out there? You're starting to question your faith. I want to encourage you, just keep doing the last thing you heard Jesus tell you to do. Remain obedient. Sometimes we get stuck and it seems like we're doing the same thing over and over and we just want a new word from God. We just want new direction. But sometimes doing the last thing you heard Jesus tell you to do is the most important thing you can be doing because he has called us first to be faithful. Our, our district supervisor for years has said to us, be faithful, faithful, faithful. That is what God has called you to do. Be faithful to your community. Be faithful to your family. Be faithful to what God has called you to do. Faithful, faithful, faithful. And then sometimes you'll find that you're fruitful. S keep obeying the last thing you heard from, from Jesus. So these guys, that was what they were doing. They were obeying the last thing they heard from Jesus. Go into Galilee. Go home. I'm going to meet you there. And so they're waiting. They're there. And they're, they're gathered. And suddenly, Jesus appears to them. 
he shows up. It's this, it's this great, big, huge moment. You guys have had probably these moments in your life at one point or another where, where God just becomes so real for you. I can think of a time where I was so angry at God, I was cursing at him, and suddenly he was so real to me, I couldn't do anything but weep. Okay? It's, it's that kind of a moment where, where God comes in the flesh and is standing before them. Jesus is there, and he is real. And here's what they do. It's just two words. Let's say it together. They worshiped. They worshiped. It's the same thing that happened. It's the second time this happened when Jesus shows up to Mary and, and uh, the two Marys in the garden. Uh, it says this, this is verse, uh, verse 9. It says, suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> and they came to him and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Mary and Mary fell down at Jesus' feet. This is the resurrected Christ, newly out of the grave. And they're grabbing his feet and they're worshiping him. And the same thing is happening here with now the disciples and the 500 others that were gathered with them. They see Jesus and the first thing they do is they fall to their feet and fall to his feet and they worship him. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, well, what does that even mean? Because in our cultural moment, we've got a pretty mixed up idea of what it means to worship right? We got a mixed up idea. Like the, the obvious confusion that many of us get is that worship is music at church. Now, and I will say that that is my favorite part of worship, right? I love music at church because it engages my whole body. It engages my emotions. It engages my mind. It engages everything about myself. And it's the time where I'm able to really present myself wholly to God. But it's not worship in and of itself. It's just music, Music is a tool that helps facilitate our worship to God. It's not like in this moment there was a pop-up worship band on the mountain, right? You know, it's like, look, it's Jesus, and somebody pulls out a guitar, and then somebody's like, hey, look, I got a djembe drum, and they start playing. It was just, it's not what happened. Um, so what was going on here? So if that's not what happened, then what was it? Was it that they just suddenly have feelings of worship, right? You guys know that the feels we go to, we, especially when you go to, to large churches, and, and i got to tell you, we do it here. We get the feels in worship. Um, it's that deep feeling, that ecstatic joy, or maybe we're overwhelmed with some sort of emotion. We cry, or, you know, we're always looking for that moment where we cry. It's like, when we've cried in worship, then we've had good worship. Uh, <laughs> and some of you are like, no, that's not good worship. That'd be terrible worship if I was crying. I only cry when it's really bad. <laughs> John, John's there, right? He's laughing. But sometimes I think we look at a worship experience, if we didn't feel something, then worship wasn't good. Feelings are really important, and we talk about them here, right? We, we want to engage with our feelings and our emotions. We were whole people. God created us with emotions. But our feelings don't always tell us the truth, right? They don't always lead us to truth. And so we have to question them sometimes. They serve a purpose, and they're important, but our feelings don't make worship. Because we can worship God and feel nothing. And we can worship God and we can feel overwhelmed by his presence. Both times, if we feel overwhelmed by his presence and we feel nothing, in both cases, God was still present. Because God is with us all the time. He says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Right? So worship isn't necessarily feelings. 
Now, the church has tried to, to bring a correction to worship in the church around music because we've really associated this idea of music and worship. And I only worship when I'm singing. And then there's people who can't sing, people who can't engage with music because of ear hearing problems. Or they get, they, we've had people even come and they get anxious because of the loud noise or the drums or different things like that. And they can't. So how do, what is worship then? If it's not music, if it's not your feelings, well, it's everything we do, the church has said. You know, everything you do, it's a life of worship that we are called to. But there are really some things that are very hard to categorize as worship, right? Just, I mean, you can think of at least one or two inappropriate places, right? Like bathrooms. It's hard to categorize things that go on in bathrooms as worship. God's still present with you. I'll let you wrap your brain around that. God's still good. It's not necessarily worship, but we can live a life of worship if our heart is in an attitude of worship at all times. Now, that's like this highfalutin big idea that is it's out there, and it's true, okay? Our whole life can be a life of worship. Everything we do can be worship if we have the attitude of worship. But achieving that, that's like, that's like, that's PhD level Christian stuff, okay? That's like, that's stuff that we work at after a lifetime of digging into silence and solitude and stillness. And, and I want to encourage you, move toward that. But it is, it's not what's going on here in this passage. So what is worship? Worship is this, and this is kind of my working definition of what worship is, built on scripture and experience. And this is it. Worship is a soul's response to the object of its longing and affection expressed through the body. It sounds very clinical, doesn't it? It sounds very dry. It's, I'm just trying to describe what's happening, what happens among us when we are singing these songs, what, what happened with these disciples when they saw Jesus, when, when the woman saw Jesus and they fell down at his feet. What was going on? It was a soul response. The, the deepest part of them, our body, soul, spirit, mind, strength, all coming together to form the deepest part of who we are, is meeting the object of their longing and affection. These men and women so wanted to see Jesus. They so wanted to be in his presence that when they saw him, they worshiped. Their souls spontaneously erupted in worship. It responded to this thing that they so wanted to see, and out of them came worship. And it didn't just come out in nice words. It didn't just come out with ideas. It didn't come out with good thoughts, but their body expressed something because we're all connected, right? And we're like, we're like, you just can't take it apart. You can't take your soul from your body and have your body alive. It's what animates us. But our body responds to what our soul is saying. And so what happens is these women, they fall down on the ground. They wrap their arms around Jesus. The men probably went to their knees. They raised their hands. Maybe they sang songs. We don't exactly know what they happened. But their soul responded to the object of their longing and their affection. That is what worship is. It's an individual soul responding to the very presence of God, which is the thing that all of us really, really want, right? We all, that's why we're here. We come to meet with God. We don't come because the coffee's good. The coffee is good. We use four scoops of coffee to make a pot of coffee here. It's really good coffee. Today, you got donuts. I mean, you just never know how good it's going to be when you show up here. But here's what you do know, that Jesus will be here, that the Holy Spirit will be here, that God the Father will be present. That's the, tri that's the Trinity, right? The, the three 
aspects or parts of God in this wild dance of love that we are invited as a community into the midst of. The object of our longing and affection is here, and that's why we get ourselves out of bed on Sunday mornings, because it's a hard thing to do. That's why we show up to worship, even when we don't feel like it. It's a response to coming in contact with the longing and of our souls. And so that's why it's really good to pay attention to what your longings are, to know what it is that, that you're really looking for. And at the deepest, deepest part of each of us, what we're looking for is the same thing that these men and women were looking for, Jesus, to see him. Worship is also, though, what happens when God's people gather together in God's presence. It's not something that is just a, a, a lone thing that we do, right? A lot of people like have this idea that I'll just go out into the woods by myself, and that's where I best worship. But worship throughout Scripture is almost never done by a person's self. That's a really weird way of saying that. It's never done alone. It's not something we just go off and do, right? Now, you are in the woods, and Jesus shows up. Your soul finds the object of its longing and affection. What happens? You worship. <laughs> it happens. But by and large, in the Christian tradition and in the, in the teaching of the Scriptures, it's when the people of God come together in the presence of God, and together our souls find the object of our affection, and together we express worship before God. Worshiping alone is good, but it's not meant to be the mainstay of the Christian worship or life. So when we come together on a Sunday morning, well, just being together, when we open our hearts and we open our eyes and we open our ears and we open our minds to the presence of God and we acknowledge, God, you were with us, what comes out of us is worship. Sometimes it's expressed in song. Sometimes it's expressed in words. Sometimes it's expressed encouragement to one another. Sometimes it's expressed in a hug or a handshake. Sometimes it's expressed in the openness of our heart and mind to hear what God might be saying to us. So even as we listen to God's word being preached, we worship. We're responding to God. But worship is also a discipline. And that's a part of what we see happening here. These people were formed in a culture that taught them to worship from the beginning of the morning to three to seven times in the day to stop and to pause and to worship God, to respond, to allow their or soul to respond to God's presence and to train their soul to respond to God's presence even when they didn't feel or know that God was present with them. They had been taught from a very young age the Psalms. And if you read the book of Psalms, Psalms were crazy. They absolutely revolutionized the worship life of the people of God. Before that, they had just a few songs. They would come together. They would offer sacrifices. But then David shows up with, a, with a, his version of a guitar, and he brings the feels, right? He introduces the feelings and emotions into worship, and he lives this wild life of, of whole honesty before God. And he teaches the whole nation of Israel to do the same thing by singing and praying these psalms over and over again. By the first century, people had been trained to three to seven times a day to pause, and they would start, and they would, they would just worship God, whether they were waking up in the morning or they were eating a meal. If you've watched the, movie, the TV show The Chosen, you'll hear it happen a few times. And they'll say this, and it's, I'm going to try the Hebrew because it sounds really cool to me. 
Okay, it says Baruch Adonai Elohim Melecha Ahalem. I think very close. I, I, I practiced this a lot last week. And this is what it says. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. And then they would go from there and begin to add their praise to this, this, this word that the whole community was using. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. So these men and women had been formed with that. They'd wake up in the morning and they would say, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who kept the world going while I slept, who gave me new breath and a new day and a new life to live before you and for you. And they would add their prayers and praises to that. They would say, Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, who's provided this meal, who's given us this wine to drink and to make us joyful, who's given us this community and this family. And they just worship God through these words. So what was probably happening when the women met Jesus in the garden and when the men saw Jesus on that hill, they probably fell to their knees and lifted up their hands. This is what they were taught to do. And they said, blessed are you looking at Jesus, O Lord God, King of the universe, assigning to Jesus the, the title of God. It was, it was huge. It was at a crazy moment. So this is, this is revolutionary stuff. Up to this point, so Jewish people would be reading this, and they'd be like, that's heresy because Jesus isn't God. But they knew because they saw Jesus, that this is God. And what probably came out of them first and foremost was memorized, disciplined words of worship that they learned. This is why when we do songs here, we tend to do songs that are a bit repetitive because we want the words to be in you because when on Tuesday you encounter Jesus as you're going throughout your day, we want you to come up with, your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. We want you to just have worship ready to come out of you, even to say the words. We discipline ourselves to learn worship. Worship, though, good worship, changes us. There's three absolutely gut-wrenching words in this text. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, semicolon, but some doubted. I read over this passage like a thousand times and been like, ah, I don't get it. Why are those words there? Why, wh what is this? Let's just get on with the whole commissioning thing. Tell us what to go do now, right? <laughs> you know, we all, we all, tell us what to do. Let's make this really practical. Tell us what to do. And we just go flying right past those three words, but some doubted. Face to face with the glory of God, face to face with the resurrected of, G of Jesus, even in the midst of this pop-up worship experience, some doubted. Some doubted. What did they doubt? Some of them maybe doubted it was actually Jesus. Some of them doubted what some of the others were saying, that this is Jesus' body, that he is not a ghost. Maybe they were doubting that he actually rose from the dead. Maybe they were doubting he actually died. Maybe it wasn't Jesus they were doubting. Maybe they were doubting themselves, their ability to, to go on and to move on with life and to, to continue this movement that Jesus had started without Jesus physically present with them. 
Whatever it was they doubted, this encounter with God and worship was not enough to change them. And my question for us this morning is how often is that true of us? We come to church. We, we enter into this dance with the Trinity, with this wild love relationship with God, and we come together, and we, we come with these expectations. We're expecting the feels in worship. We're expecting the music to be big or the music to be small. We're expecting somebody to say hi to us or pray for us. Or We have all these things that we hope that will happen, and some of them don't happen, and we walk away and we just miss God's presence. We miss this moment of worship. We doubt, and we walk away unchanged. There's this scientific idea of a neutrino. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but a neutrino is like this, like this little teeny tiny particle. When I say little teeny tiny, I'm like holding my fingers as though I could hold one. That is so small that it can pass through an atom, any other atom, and go unchanged. And I think sometimes our worship as a Christian community is neutrino worship. It's so small we, we hold it so, we're just so tiny in it. We, we release so little of it that we can just pass through the presence of God somehow and walk away unchanged. And that scares me. It scares me how often I find that I can come to church and preach a sermon and still walk away unchanged. How often we can pray together and be in the presence of God together and walk away and, and, and it's no different that later that afternoon or the next day. And that's not to say that change happens instantaneously, right? We know this, that change is slow. Real change is deep and slow. We trust in the slow work of God. We don't come every Sunday and it's just like, boom, I'm a different person. The Holy Spirit's empowered me and now I float, right? We don't, that's not the way it works. But something happens in us when we encounter the presence of God. And the question is, are we changed? Are we different because of it? Paul connects the spiritual act of worship to transformation over and over again. In Romans 12, 2, he says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, right? There's that word, worship. And he says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here, our proper worship is a mind that's been changed by and directing, of our, our mind has been changed and our body has been directed to live differently because we worshiped, because we encountered God in worship. It's participatory. It's something we engage in together. It's transformational. It changes us because we do it. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all who are with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. One of the things I think we really get wrong about worship is that we put ourselves in the center of it. We have worship preferences, worship style preferences. We don't want a big church. We want a small church. We don't want a loud church. We want a quiet church. We want a, we want a church with big worship. Or, you know, we want church that at least has got drums. We, we, want church that we want worship to look a certain way, and it's about our preferences. But worship is not about us at all. It's about God. 
And it's entering into that circle of the Trinity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and contemplating, looking upon the very face of God. And as we look at God, as we contemplate Him, as we see God's glory in worship, we are transformed, we are changed. Worship awakens a desire in us for change. And it does it by challenging the spiritual status quo. We sing songs like, Lord, have your way in me. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way in me. Or we sing, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. On Tuesday, we're like, some things to Jesus I surrendered. Some of those things I held on to really tight. Worship challenges the status quo. Blessed are you, Lord God, king of the universe. I am not king of the universe. You are king of the universe. We take ourselves off the throne for a little while, and we declare that God is God alone. And it awakens a desire for change within us because we recognize that he is on the throne and I am not, but things have got to change in this world around me. Things have got to change in my family. Things have got to change in my workplace, and I can't change them, and so we look to God. It transforms us. Worship challenges us also to take an honest look at ourselves. When we become aware of God, this, <laughs> this is really funny. I wrote this down, and I looked at it, and I said, this is so good, it must be a quote. And I went and looked, and I couldn't find that it was a quote. And I'm like, I just wrote something that I'm going to quote for myself. <laughs> when we become aware of God, we often become very aware of ourselves. The first reaction to seeing Jesus, the risen Jesus, very often when you read the scripture, is fear. Not because it was a ghost, but because there's this realization that they're in the presence of something very, very powerful and very, very holy, and I am not so powerful, and I am not so holy. You see Isaiah, he comes into the presence of God. He sees angels flying around the throne of God and singing songs. And he's like, his response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a mess, God. Moses, he comes into the presence of God and God says, take off your shoes, Moses. This is holy ground. You've got sheep poop on your, food, your, your shoes. It's time to get those off. You can't carry that. And he falls down on his face in the presence of God. Sick people, blind people broken people coming to Jesus. What do they cry out? That is just heal me. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like Paul, when we come into the very presence of God, the inner reality of who we are becomes very clear. Paul was not struck blind because God wanted him blind. Paul was struck blind when he met Jesus because suddenly the inner reality of his heart became the outer reality of his eyes. And later... When he understood who Jesus was, it says the scales fell away and he could see. When we come into the presence of God, we become very aware of our sin and we take a good look at ourselves. So my hope is that as we worship as a church, as a community, week by week, coming week by week, 
and for you personally in your own discipline day by day that you would be transformed by regular encounters with the living God. Richard Foster, he's an author. Uh, he's a Quaker author. Quakers are really cool people. You should check out Quakers. Uh, Quakers are Christians, so, and not just the oatmeal guy. Uh, he wrote this book, and it sounds like it's like the worst title ever, so he should not have named his book this, and I would tell him that if I ever meet him, but it's called Celebration of Discipline, and we have it out in the lobby, and you should check it out. It's really good. But he said this, to stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. The men and the women who saw Jesus in his 40 days on earth before his ascension into heaven were radically changed by their encounters with him. That's what we see happening in the rest of this passage. Jesus said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very ends of the age. So these men and women went from powerless to empowered by an encounter with God. They went from confused about what was happening in the world and why Jesus was dead, this hope that they had had, to having great clarity about life and about who God is. They went from lost as to what to do next to being given a very clear and purposeful mission. They went from alone in the world because they had all scattered to, be, to carrying the very presence of God within them. They went in obedient to the last thing they heard Jesus say to them, and they came out different people on the other side. We are invited into the center of the circle, into the very midst of the Trinity, at every moment, but especially when his people gather together. We become a community within the community of God, and we are transformed as we come face to face with the living presence of God together. We cannot walk away from these gatherings the same. Even if it's we walk away with a little more courage, we walk away with a little more encouragement, we walk away with a little more hope, we walk away with a little more peace. We are changed incrementally, glory by glory. But here's the, the catch of all this. As much as I want to as your pastor, as much as I want to as a worship leader, I cannot create an encounter with the living presence of God for you. There's been much teaching amongst musical worship circles on how to create the moment. We have things like holy keys. You guys know what holy keys are? That's when they come to the end of the sermon like this, and somebody walks up to the piano, and they start playing those open chords, and then little strings in there, and then people start feeling that emotion just a little more. We just go a little deeper, a little more. We, we, we talk about having songs that, that are big, emotional songs with lots of drums and then bringing it down for a moment. And we can craft these experiences that are meant to be encounters with God. But I have been to really well-crafted worship services where I watch people worship the band and not the living God. And I'm sad to say that I have been a part of some of those bands. I can't create an encounter with God for you. I just can't do it. It's got to be the longing of your heart, the depth of your desire. What do you do if you don't feel it? 
What do you do if you don't think you encountered God in a worship service? What if worship has lost its meaning for you? My one advice to you is this. If worship has lost its meaning for you, worship like you mean it. Worship like you mean it. Pray like you mean it. Give worship meaning by bringing it up from your own soul, by allowing your heart to speak truth even when part of you is doubting. I can't create life-transforming, life-altering moments in the presence of God for you. I can't give you your three-word story about an encounter with God, but I can tell you that God is present. And that could be very, very difficult to hold on to sometimes. We've all been through things, right? Some of us are going through things right now where you're lying in bed at night going, God, are you even real in this situation? But I can tell you that God is present. And surely I am with you always to the ends of the age. And you can put your own name in there. And Doug, I am with you always to the ends of the age. I don't know why we had to have Shirley's name there, but he went all of us. We are drawn into the beautiful community of God's love, and he is as close to us as a breath. There is no silver bullet in the Bible for having a life-altering encounter with God except this. Seek me, and you shall find me if you seek me with all of your heart. I want to close with two things. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to just, I'm inviting your soul to ask this question and to respond to God. And then we're going to close with a, a worship song, okay? Um, and I know worship, music might not be your thing, but worship anyway. Worship might be your thing. Music might be your thing. So worship louder. And here's my question for you today. What does your soul want to say to God in response to this message? In response to this passage we read, and I'm going to read it again. What does your soul want to say to God in response to this? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What does your soul want to say to God?